0: Please take a seat. Let's pray now. Father, we do thank you again for your words to us, and we ask that as we consider these verses now from Ecclesiastes 9 and 10, that you would help me and help us all uh, to humble ourselves before your word and receive with meekness your wisdom and to be transformed by it, to be more and more like Jesus. Help us to walk in the ways of wisdom, we pray, because we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. So please do keep those uh, verses open in front of you as we have a look at them this morning. We're coming back once again now to this great book of the Bible, uh, Ecclesiastes. And as you, I'm sure, probably know by now, It is a book which is all about life under the sun. And that is the teacher who's writing this. That's his way of saying life here on earth, here in this fallen creation, life under the sun. What is life like really? How do we even begin to make head or tail of it? Is it possible for us to find true meaning? and true satisfaction in life when we live in a world where everything seems to just come and go so quickly and sometimes everything just feels futile. And in this part of the book that we're in at the moment, these chapters surrounding the section we're looking at this morning, the teacher has been telling us a great deal about wisdom. And in the Bible, wisdom simply means living God's way in God's world. The opposite of wisdom in the Bible is folly, foolishness. And in the Bible, to be foolish doesn't mean that you're stupid, doesn't mean that you're unintelligent, doesn't mean that you have a below average IQ. Rather, in the Bible, to be foolish is the opposite of living God's way in God's world. It means trying to put God out of the picture and trying to live your way in God's world, trying to live as if God just isn't there, living as if you're the center of the world and you set the rules for your own life. And in this section that we're looking at this morning, the teacher wants us to see why we should pursue wisdom and why we should shun folly. And there is only really one main point to what he's saying to us here, and everything else really is just an application that that flows out of it. And the main point is simply this, wisdom is better than might. Wisdom is better than might. And to convince us of that main point, The teacher begins with this little story, doesn't he, which sets the scene for us. Maybe it's a a parable, a story that he made up to make his point. But I, I take it from verse 13 that this is actually a true story. This is something that really happened, something that the teacher saw for himself. He says there, doesn't he, I have also seen this example of wisdom, under the sun and it seemed great to me. I think he's telling us a story that really happened, something he's seen himself in the course of his life. He doesn't tell us specifically when or where this all happened but he tells us that there was a little city somewhere and this little city of course only had a few men in it not many men to build an army and defend themselves against attack and one day a great and powerful king came against this city with his huge army we can assume that this army was on its way somewhere else they were going to go and attack another country or, or whatever And on the way, they were capturing other small places, strengthening their stronghold on the land. And so they came to this little city, and they laid siege to it. They built these great siege works against this city. And surely you would think it would just be a matter of time until this small place inevitably had to surrender to the enemy. And yet, even though they only had a a tiny fighting force, this small city had a poor but wise man who was living there. And somehow, by his wisdom, he delivered that city out of the hands of this intimidating enemy. And again, we're not told the specific details, and we don't know exactly how this took place. Maybe this wise man was a a great strategist. He fathomed a way to defeat this big army, even with a a tiny army. Or maybe he was an expert negotiator. By his wisdom, he was able to come to terms with this powerful king, find a way for his city to live in peace. We don't know the exact circumstances of what took place, but the point is this, it was wisdom that saved the day. And the point that is being made is very simple, isn't it? Wisdom is better than might. And in life, you're better off being a poor but wise person than being a rich and powerful king who has no wisdom. It is far better to go through your life as somebody with no money and no social status, no impressive job or whatever, and yet to have the knowledge of what it means to live God's way in this world that God has made. It is better to live like that than to be rich and powerful and to have everything that you want and yet think that you can live your own way in the world that God has made. Wisdom, you see, is better than might. And so we've been told here, aren't we, prize wisdom above all else, prize wisdom above worldly status, above worldly success and worldly influence. Proverbs chapter four tells us, get wisdom, get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her, that is, do not forsake wisdom, and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place a garland on your head. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. And having made that main point, that wisdom is better than might, the teacher wants to then unpack this a little bit more. He wants us to give the full picture here. And in the next few verses, he's going to do three things. Firstly, he's going to give us a reality check. And then he's going to give us a warning. And then he's going to give us a motivation So to start with, let's see the the reality check, which we find in verses 15 and 16. And the reality check is this, that wisdom is often despised. That's verses 15 and 16 of of chapter nine. Wisdom is often despised. And this story continues, doesn't it? Uh, By the wisdom of that poor wise man, this little city had been rescued wonderfully, from this huge invading army. And so what do you think the town did with this poor wise man who had rescued them? How will the the story turn out? Well, you'd expect, wouldn't you, that this little city, this town, would celebrate this man. Maybe they would bestow upon him some special honour in recognition of his wisdom, how this man's wisdom brought safety to all the citizens of that city. Uh, Maybe they'd even make him their mayor. Uh, They would look to him to lead their city in the future. And sadly, that is not what happened. Far from it. Look at what the teacher says next. He says, Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. He was the hero. And yet his city just forgot about him. And indeed, they despised his wisdom. They just wouldn't listen to him in the future, no matter what he had done for them in the past. And the teacher is giving us this reality check, do you see? He has shown us that wisdom is better than might. And the reality check is that very often in this world, that wisdom is despised. And you know it yourself as a a Christian, don't you? You try and live your life by God's wisdom. As a follower of Jesus, you're seeking to live your life God's way in God's world. And you're seeking to do that in your workplace and in your school or college and in your family and in your neighbourhood. And what happens when you try and live that way? Do do those around you, everyone around you in that workplace or whatever, do they praise you for living this way? Well, occasionally that might be the case, but very often that godly wisdom by which you seek to live is despised. And people say to you, what's wrong with you? Why are you Christians all so weird? Why won't you work on a Sunday? Why won't you get drunk at the weekend? Why won't you have sex until you've got married? How come you just want to read the Bible and you want to pray and you want to go to church? What's wrong with you living that way? It's true, isn't it? The teacher says, no, this wisdom is better than might. But very often the reality is that wisdom is despised in the world in which we live. That's the reality check. And then here's the warning. And the warning is that wisdom can be undermined by folly. Wisdom can be undermined by folly. And he he uses this illustration that we were thinking about with the children earlier on. Uh, Just imagine for a moment that it's your wedding anniversary coming up and uh, you wanna buy some perfume or some Davidoff cool water uh, for your spouse. And uh, you go to the expensive shop where you can buy these things or duty-free next time it, you're at the airport, wherever you may buy these things from. And you find this bottle of perfume or aftershave that, that looks perfect. And you, you try the, t- the, the tester, you, you give it a, a little spray. And yet the smell is horrendous. And you think to yourself, it smells like something has died in there. And then you, you take a, a closer look at that bottle and you realize that something has died in there. There is a, a big dead fly floating around in that perfume and that fly is rotting and it's ruined this, this whole bottle of expensive perfume. And of course the point of the illustration is this, be warned that a little folly can completely undermine your wisdom. So look at the the end of chapter nine and into chapter 10. We're told that wisdom is better than weapons of war, better than might, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. It's so true, isn't it? Just one sin, just one sin can undermine a lifetime of wise living. You can have a, a happy marriage for years and years and in just a few minutes you can commit adultery and destroy your marriage. Or you can say something in the, the heat of a moment and you can shatter a friendship or split a church. Uh, be warned, by God's help, stay on your guard. Wisdom is greater than might. But that wisdom can be undermined by a little folly in an instant. And then here's the motivation for us to pursue wisdom. The motivation is this, that either wisdom or folly will direct our life. That's the the point in verses two and three of chapter 10. Either wisdom or folly will direct our life. So to start with, the teacher says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Someone has paraphrased it by saying, wisdom will lead you aright, And folly will lead you astray. And he's telling us, isn't he, here, that there are only really two ways to live in this world. You can live by wisdom, or you can live by folly. You can submit yourself to living God's way, that is by repenting of your sin, trusting in Jesus, following him as your Lord. Or you can keep living your own way. And you can act as if God isn't there and as if you're the master of your fate, you're the captain of your soul. It's either wisdom or folly, we're being told here. And whichever you pursue, it will set the direction of your life. It will set you off on a trajectory either towards godly living or towards futile, foolish, sinful living. And verse three gives us a a little picture of what the foolish person's life looks like. It says that even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. And the point is that in the end, foolishness will so come to dictate your life that there will be no way of disguising the fact that you are a fool. Even when he's doing something as simple as just walking down the street, people know this is a fool. And every time that he opens his mouth, which as we're going to see later on, he does very often, the words that come out demonstrate the foolishness of that person's heart and mind. And so here is your motivation to pursue wisdom because either wisdom or folly will direct your life. And so choose wisdom. Whatever you get, get wisdom. Come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Take his yoke upon you. Learn from him. Because in him have found all the treasures of wisdom which will direct your life. And then the rest of the chapter from verse four through to the end simply applies all of this to various different areas of life. And you see, the teacher wants us to show us in some very practical ways what it's going to look like to be someone who turns away from folly and instead pursues wisdom. And notice he's got three different areas of life that he wants to show us. We're going to look at each one just very briefly this morning. And the first is that you need wisdom in your work. You, you need wisdom in your work. That's what we see in verses 8 to 11. And in those verses, the teacher, you see, describes a whole variety of different jobs, occupations that people might do. They're mostly forms of manual labor. And what they all have in common is that if you just charge on ahead in these pursuits without applying wisdom, you're going to end up getting hurt in the end. If you think it's all about might not about wisdom in your work you're going to get hurt in the end wisdom is better than might and so he says to us he who digs a pit will fall into it a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall he who quarries stones is hurt by them he who splits logs is endangered by them now I know that Not many of us do these kind of things in our work today, at least not very often. But you get the point of what is being said here, don't you? The point is that whatever you do for your daily work, whether that's in the workplace or at home or whatever else, if you try and work in such a way that you just charge on ahead without applying wisdom to the way that you conduct yourself in that work, then your work is going to be self-defeating in the end. It's going to be to your own hurt, Sooner or later. You need wisdom in your work. And verses 10 and 11 take that point a little bit further. And both of those verses show us that not only do you need wisdom in your work, but also you need wisdom at the outset of your work, not just as an afterthought sometime later on. So in verse 10, uh, the picture is this. Trying to start your work without applying wisdom first is like trying to cut things without sharpening your knife first. And of course, the work just ends up being so much more tiring. You need to start by sharpening the edge and then your work becomes more productive, more rewarding. And in a similar way, start by applying wisdom. Start by applying wisdom and your work becomes more productive. Your work becomes more rewarding then exactly the same point is made in verse 11 but it's in a a funnier way Uh, the the man in this verse works as a snake charmer I'm sure none of us do that for our job but this is what this man does he's a, a snake charmer and he goes to the market square and he opens his basket that's of course got the snake in it already and then he he sets this basket down and he he goes over and puts his his money box on the ground he he hopes that the punters are going to throw their coins in when they see him charm this snake and then he he gets his his musical instrument his pipe out that he's going to use and and play to to try and charm the snake and he he starts to clean it or tune it or or whatever And of course, all the while, he's doing this. There's the basket with the snake in, with the the lid off. And the snake has still not been charmed. And unnoticed, the the snake is now out of the basket. The the snake has slithered across the the market square and has bitten somebody on the hand. And that person is, is screaming and shouting about this unruly snake and this careless snake charmer and ask yourself, do you you think that this snake charmer is gonna make much money that day in the market? Well, of course he won't, will he? Verse 11 says, if the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage or literally no profit, no fee to the charmer. You need to charm the snake first and then your work will be rewarded. And you see, it's the same point, isn't it, as verse 10. Sharpen the blade first. Then your work as a woodcutter will be more productive. Charm the serpent first. Then your work as a snake charmer will be more profitable. And whatever you do in your work, apply wisdom first. Because as we're told here, wisdom helps one to succeed in whatever our work may be. That's worth asking, isn't it? What does it look like then to apply wisdom to our work? Maybe that question's in your mind. You're thinking, whatever I do for for my daily work, what does it mean for me to apply wisdom to that? And there are many things we could say to that. Let me mention just three things very, very briefly. Uh, Firstly, applying wisdom to your work means being industrious in your work. And that point is made a bit later on in the chapter, verse 18, through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Or we could go to the book of Proverbs and see the same wisdom applied. Proverbs 19, verse 15, slothfulness casts into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. Wisdom means being industrious in your work. And then also wisdom means being honest. In your work, not cheating people in your work. So, Proverbs verse uh, chapter eleven, verse one tells us, "A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight." And then, thirdly, and most importantly, wisdom means being Christ honouring in your work, whatever you do, being Christ honouring. So Colossians chapter three, verses 23 and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, I know there is so much more that could be said on this point, we need to move on, but suffice to say, you need wisdom in your work and you need it at the, at the start, at the outset Whatever your work involves, begin with wisdom. And then the second area of life which the teacher points us to is this. You need wisdom in your words. You need it in your work and in your words. So that's verses 12 to 14. The words of a wise man's mouth will win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words. Though no man knows what is to be and who can tell him what will be after him. And whereas wise words bring favor, foolish words cause self-destruction, they end in madness and they are just based on idle speculation rather than on fact. James chapter three tells us, we all stumble in many ways and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, He is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. We all sin in our words. And Jesus tells us in the Gospels why it is that none of us, not even one of us, is able to avoid sinning in what we say. Jesus says these words, How can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth Speaks In other words, you see, Jesus is telling us that the problem is not actually our tongues. Uh, The problem is never just your tongue. Uh, The problem is always our hearts. Uh, The problem is that we have hearts with sin sloshing around in them. And we try and disguise that sin as if it's not really there. And sometimes we do a a half-decent job of that. But from time to time, some of that sin overflows, it spills out and very often it it spills out of your mouth in the form of angry words or overcritical words or gossiping words or slanderous words or obscene words or untrue words or half-true words or proud self-aggrandizing, (coughs) self-congratulating Self righteous words. What do we need? We need wisdom in our words. We need a heart that has received with meekness the wisdom of Christ and which is being shaped by that wisdom so that out of that heart flows wise words, not foolish words. And then, thirdly and finally, we also need wisdom in our leaders do you notice in the chapter quite often we refer to different leaders don't we Uh, there's various different verses about leaders and leading and relating to leaders and and such like Uh, we need wisdom in our leaders look back at verses five and six we need to remember as we look at these verses on leaders that we live in a very different political and social uh, cultural context to the one that is being described here We need to translate some of these things into our own context when we come across words like princes and slaves and nobility and such like. But the point is, it is devastating to a nation when it has leaders who govern out of foolishness rather than out of wisdom. That is, they they seek to govern with God out of the picture rather than with God in the picture and with God at the very center of the picture. So verse five, the teacher says, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. In other words, it's political chaos and it's proceeding from this foolish ruler flowing from him down onto all of his subjects. And then verse 16 makes a similar point. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. That is woe to the country whose leader is a child spiritually, one who has not learned the wisdom of God and whose colleagues in power are in it for the abuse of privileges rather than for the good of the people. You see the point, don't you? We need wisdom in our leaders And verse 17 tells us what that will look like. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Now, how do we apply these verses to our context today? Well, let me say two things very quickly as we close. The the first application is, of course, this. Pray for our leaders. Pray for our leaders. Paul says to Timothy, I urge... That supplications, prayers, intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Saviour who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Given the the political uncertainty amidst which we live today and, of course, as well as that, the very real prospect of changes to abortion legislation here, how much do we need to pray for those in positions of leadership in our society? Pray that they would lead and govern out of a sense of God's wisdom shaping their hearts and their minds and redirecting their decision-making in all of these things. As God's word says, pray for our leaders. And then last of all, we finish with this, of course. Look to the king who is wisdom himself. Look to the king who is wisdom himself. And there is an underlying longing in this chapter, isn't there? That there would be a king on the throne who would govern according to the wisdom of God and under whose rule all of his people would enjoy all of the blessings that flow to them through his perfect reign. And of course that longing resolves ultimately not in David or Solomon or Josiah or Hezekiah or any other king that has been and gone throughout human history. But that longing for a king who reigns with wisdom resolves only and ultimately in Jesus Christ. He is the king who is wisdom himself. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And at the end of the day, it is only those who belong to his kingdom by trusting in him who know the blessedness that verse 17 longs for. He's the king who is wisdom himself. Isaiah writes of his reign, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We need wisdom in our leaders, don't we? Look to the king, who is wisdom himself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your wisdom, which is so precious, and which is found ultimately in Christ himself. And as the New Testament tells us, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom. And we've seen this morning how precious that wisdom is. It is better than might. Even... Though so often in this world, that wisdom is despised. And we pray that you would guard us from the folly that would so easily and so quickly undermine wisdom. And we pray that you would guide us in your ways. And Father, we pray that you would help us to apply your wisdom to these different areas that we've looked at in the second half of chapter 10. We pray for wisdom in our work, whatever it is we do. Help us to apply your wisdom to our daily work and to do so at the outset. Help us to work hard. Help us to work honestly. And help us to work for Christ's glory because it's him we're serving. And we pray for wisdom in our words because out of the overflow of our sinful hearts, sinful and foolish words come. Forgive us for these things and give us hearts of wisdom which will produce wise words, we pray. We pray for wisdom in our leaders as well. We pray for them in the midst of, of all the confusion of this present time we pray for good and stable government we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven we pray against any move which would legalize the taking of lives of those still in the womb and we pray that in this situation that you would grant your wisdom to those who govern us. we pray and ultimately we look to our perfect king jesus who is wisdom himself And we thank you and we praise you for him. And we look forward to the full coming of his kingdom when under his perfect reign, we will live in the happy land of the new creation, praising Jesus. And in his strong name, we ask all of these things. Amen.